contact answercoalition.org and you can get some information what's been happening and the protests. We had a All great right. protest in San Francisco for Cuba yesterday. Okay, come back and talk to us. We're out of time. Gloria Larive in Havana, thank you. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Stay tuned. FM on your Portland dial, KBOO.FM on your everywhere on earth internet dial. Stay safe, stay sane, stay tuned. KBOO, the best in community radio. This is Constance Sharp of Rock to Recovery and co-author of the book Rock to Recovery Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation with Less Gear. Asking you to tune in to KBU on Monday, November 22nd at 11 p.m. for Eclectic Pandemic. Here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Welcome to The Food Show, I'm Emily Becker. Today on The Food Show, we'll hear about how factory farm biogas, also called renewable natural gas, is damaging our environment, health, and propping up unsustainable industrial agriculture. Tara Heinzen, the legal director at Food and Water Watch, will explain what biogas is, how this lucrative greenwashing is spurring expansions of factory farms, and the current legal and policy challenges. First up, we'll take a look at how the Portland food scene has been impacted by all the tumultuous events of the past two years, including the pandemic, racial justice protests, the climate, and workers calling out sexism and oppressive behavior. Alex Frain from Eater PDX joins me to talk about what he's observed and where things might be going. Welcome, Alex. 
My name is Alex Frain. I am a Portland native and a local journalist and writer specializing in food, drink, restaurants, and bars. I primarily write for Eater Portland or Eater PDX, but I also write for websites like Thrillist and for uh, newspapers like the Willamette Week on occasion. And I'm currently working on a travel book with an English publishing company about Portland, Oregon. That sounds really exciting. Today, we're going to talk a little bit just about what's happening in Portland in 2021 in our restaurant and food scene. I'm so excited that you could join us, Alex, to talk about food because, you know, I eat at like five places <laughs> repeatedly and uh, I cook a lot more than I eat out. And so it's nice to just kind of hear what's happening. You know, we hear all these rumblings all the time about places shutting down, labor shortages, people not wanting to work, people opening new places, all sorts of things are happening. So I'm just kind of curious, in the big picture, um, what impacts do you see on the Portland food scene from COVID? I think kind of picking at one of your points you just made or one of the, uh, the bullet points you just spoke to, is this uh, something that I'm, I'm sure you understand is not necessarily a myth, but certainly widely misrepresented is this idea of that people don't want to work. There's undeniably a, la a labor shortage. That's, you know, I mean, there's really no arguing that there's a labor shortage because there is. Uh, you have a lot of restaurants that are closed half of the week or unable to staff on certain days. And I, I kind of want to speak to that in detail a little bit later. Um, and then you have all these other industries that are affected and you see all these, you know, videos and photos online and on Twitter and the like about like, oh, you know, we're closed right now because no one wants to work. And the reason that I say that that's a myth or that it's widely misrepresented is that it's not that people don't want to work. It's that, well, there's a, a number of reasons and a lot of them come down to the fact that I think when you look at what COVID has done most to the restaurant industry and to industries in general, it's revealed the deep systemic injustices and, and inequity that is embedded within this culture. I, for years before I was a writer, I was a food service worker myself. And that was when I was kind of, you know, young and healthy and, and could, you know, pulled surge shifts uh, every weekend and everything. Um, and so I, I do know firsthand the difficulties with the industry. And I know secondhand, you know, what it's like to, to age while you're in that industry or to get older or to have a family or to try to support yourself through medical crises or, you know, all sorts of stuff. And the sheer fact of the matter is that we've created this industry that is it, you know, it, it drives the country, it drives our city uh, very, very much so. I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, the service industry is the number one employer in the city um, as far as overall industries. Um, but we've created this, this industry that is ultimately very, very difficult to be sustainable, to work in. Whether you're a line cook or a chef or a restaurant manager or, a, you know, a server or a barista, the truth of the matter is that the work that you're doing is not going to create a very viable and healthy lifestyle. And so I wrote an article a while ago interviewing people who had left the industry during the pandemic um, because we had seen so many stories coming out, primarily from 
restaurant owners and business owners, you know, complaining about this lack of working, but we very rarely heard from workers themselves. So I interviewed a handful of, of workers from various restaurant positions, cooks, servers, managers, bartenders. And what they all basically said to me was that the one thing that COVID did was allowed them something they had never had, which was a break. Most of these people had never had vacations because you never get paid time off. You know, you go from one job to the other pretty rapidly because you're usually living, you know, essentially hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck, or more accurately, tips to tips. Um, so for the first time ever, all of a sudden they had weeks off and they were able to assess the damage that had been done to their bodies. Uh, they had been able to assess the damage done to their personal lives, to their, um, you know, mental health, uh, addiction, all of that stuff that it was such a, such an ingrained part of the culture. And they had so little time to actually examine that because of the demands of the job that when they were finally able to have these weeks off where they were actually, you know, be able to examine this and be paid a bit, you know, have this unemployment money that they realized that there was no way they were going back because there was literally no incentive to. You know, so you started seeing these restaurants offer hiring bonuses and things resembling living wages in in an attempt to get people back to work. So I, I think that the most dramatic effect that COVID really has had is this kind of realization about just how hard it is on service workers. And service workers are obviously not unique in these difficulties, you know, living in 2021 in this, um, you know, late stage capitalism that, that is the United States right now, workers of all stripes have their difficulties. But my perspective is related very closely and intimately to the service industry. So that's, you know, where where my context comes from. And there are unique challenges to that, that industry. There's um, the hours are, you know, different from almost any other industry. Um, the culture is unique to that industry and so there's just a lot uh, basically of reasons that people aren't working and then of course there's also the the you know the the horrific and kind of inarguable truth that one of the reasons there's a worker shortage is that people died i mean you had hundreds of thousands of deaths and and while we like to paint them all as being people in their like 70s which you know there's that kind of incredibly callous rejection of them as being, you know, worth our, our grief um, when they absolutely are, uh, you still have people dying in the service industry. And um, the number one, from what I understand, the number one most dangerous job for COVID was line cooks, that per capita more line cooks died from COVID than any other position in the country. And you, you, you know, you consider the fact that people of color were much more likely to be uh, victims of COVID, that's very closely related because, you know, most kitchens in most major cities rely largely on uh, immigrants, whether documented or not, in the kitchen. So that's, you know, compounds those systemic issues and, and you know, is a reason why we've lost so many people in that industry or as part of the reason. Uh, so there's a couple of reasons why if your favorite restaurant isn't open on Monday or Tuesday, that you know and, and the last reason that the, the very most at the very bottom of the list is that people don't want to work like that's just not the case it's just this incredibly vile narrative that has been invented by kind of right-wing and moderate and 
even liberal media sources. And, you know, there's not a lot of nuance added to that. Like, maybe people don't want to work because they don't want to get sick. You know, <laughs> right? I mean, that's like the like, most obvious one, right? They just don't want to work. But right, like, people don't want to work because they don't want to get COVID yeah, or yeah. give and it to it, their partners. I've never had, I've worked in lots of restaurants and I've never taken a sick day. There's no sick days. Like you can't, you go to work if you have the flu. Like, and wouldn't you want, <laughs> of, any, if, of any career in the world, wouldn't you want paid sick time for the people who are handling your food? Yes. I mean, really, like, fundamentally, that's... Go puke in the bathroom and then serve somebody food. Yeah. not acceptable anymore. It shouldn't. And I've I've never heard from someone in the service industry who doesn't have that story that you just said. I mean, every single person has worked with... I mean, every single person who's worked in any industry has gone to work sick. But so few industries are that uh, susceptible to spreading viruses, right? Because it's all face-to-face work. It's all working with people and serving food. You know, it's like that's where transmissions happen. So, so we know that um, labor shortage is is a contributing factor. It's something that's going to be ongoing, I think, for a while. Probably in the food industry, and yet there are still businesses that are opening new restaurants and like people are still trying to hire people. Mm -hmm. What's kind of happening overall? You know, we've seen a lot of closures. We have a few openings. Where where do you think we're landing with what's happening? Well, I don't want to minimize this, but I think the when we were writing for Eater, we were expecting, I think, a lot more closures than we actually had happen. I mean, there were obviously some really, really big profile ones. Vitaly uh, Paley maybe the biggest because he closed. You know, he's been a luminary chef in Portland for decades. He he's one of the most influential chefs in the state, in my opinion. He kind of helped define what Pacific Northwest dining looked like when he opened Paley's Place. And so he was one of the larger profiles when he closed uh, all of his downtown hotels. Um, and then there was, I feel terrible, the name is escaping me right now, but another restaurateur who mostly ran restaurants that were open in hotels and near uh, large music venues and other venues. A really great guy and a great restaurateur, but he was one of the early ones to, to shut his restaurants down. So anyways, you have these big profiles and uh, a, a lot of similarities across them. These are a lot of places that were either kind of intimate, smaller dining spaces that just really weren't suitable for it, or these really, really big restaurants that especially were in, a lot of them in hotels. We lost a really large amount of our hotel restaurants and bars. But there's also a lot of places that stayed open. And so while we definitely lost a lot of places, we lose, I mean, our closure list on Eater isn't dramatically larger than it has been previous years. Like the restaurant industry, it's just a tumultuous, uh, mutable industry. So places close a lot. So there are certainly more closures than normal on our list and a lot of these big profile ones, but it isn't dramatically more than we have every year. When I talk about, you know, all, all of the problems with being a server or a line cook or things like that and how unsustainable that is, that's not me saying that restaurant owners are all are, are all rich and are making money and are you know ripping off their employees or something like that. The sustainability issue goes far beyond just the employees and also extends up to the restaurant owners. So, you know, during the pandemic, the, the places that stayed open were mostly places that were forced to lay off their entire staff and have the restaurant owners handle you know the entirely operations with maybe like one or two employees. So it's a really fragile system to begin with. Um, so while COVID did shut 
a lot down, uh, it was for a lot of them just kind of another one of those things to deal with. Yeah, part of the restaurant world. Right. Yeah. So in that regard, I think that's why we still see people opening because it isn't as dramatically different as it once was. Uh, especially now that we are looking at, you know, this really high vaccination rate in Multnomah County, lowering COVID cases pretty pretty uh, substantially over the last few weeks, over the last few months. So I think people are starting to see something of a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I don't know how accurate that is. And, you know, we can always be hit by another strain or something like that. But people want to still provide people with food and still want to, you know, uh, work and create these things and uh, bring people in and bring people together. I think a lot of the places that are opening have, have at least, you know, consideration for the fact that we're still um, living this life right now. So you ha have places that are adapting a lot and are kind of changing their models. You're seeing a lot more counter service restaurants opening these kind of casual things. You're seeing fewer of those fine dining restaurants open. Like they're happening, but for the most part, what you're seeing at is a lot more casual, um, usually models where you don't need as large of a staff. You don't need hosts and servers and food runners and all of that, but maybe just, you know, a couple of people who are able to handle most of the operations of the restaurants and, you know, pare down menus a bit, things like that. So we're looking at a little bit more of this kind of casual um, approach to dining. What about with food carts? Is that, are there more food carts opening or is it kind of sustaining? It seems like a lot of the pods have great outdoor space now and it's, um, they kind of have the boon of having the outdoor patio already built in and the casual less staff figured out. Food carts are funny. Food carts are really funny. So um, it's a complex issue. When a couple months ago, maybe even last year actually now, the, the passage of time is impossible to gauge anymore. Um, we published an article at Eater about the unique strengths of food carts during the pandemic. And you spoke to one of them already, which is this outdoor space, right? They're already used to having people outdoors. They don't have dining rooms. They don't have nearly as much staff. So they don't have to lay people off. Um, a whole bunch of reasons that food carts, and of course there's you know, big culture around them in Portland, a whole bunch of reasons that they were able to be a bit more sustainable for a long time. So much so that there was this kind of narrative that like, you know, the original story was you open a food cart, then you open a brick and mortar. And then there was this sort of narrative or joke about how it was the opposite now, right? So you had Higgins opening Piggins, which was, you know, this old established Portland restaurant opened a food cart to serve some of its food. And uh, the Bistro Montage, the Bistro Montage, which, you know, a really popular uh, dining room under the Morrison Bridge. I used to go there in high school. Uh, I was really upset to write their closing story and then a few weeks later, I was excited to write the story about the fact that the chef had bought the name and the, the menu and opened a food cart with it. So now it's a food cart, I believe, at the asylum. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, we're like, okay, here we go. No matter how bad Portland's food industry gets, we'll always have this you know, robust food cart scene. And that turned out to not be true, largely. That's, that's sort of what we're realizing now is that yes, food carts had unique advantages, to the pandemic and they also had very unique and very poignant disadvantages. So a couple weeks ago, I wrote the story of Holy Trinity barbecue closing. Uh, I had written their opening story and that was a wildly popular barbecue uh, 
Cart and the very popular John's Marketplace pod over on Powell. Uh, and, you know, we had it on our Essential 38 map. It was considered to be one of the most essential restaurants in the city. It was considered to rival any other place in town for Texas-style barbecue. Uh, you know, the only, like, real strong contenders being, like, Matt's Barbecue. And it closed because he had a couple weeks of bad business and he could not, he just wasn't being sustainable. It wasn't sustainable to, for his business anymore. And so a couple of those unique disadvantages I want to touch on is one, places like Holy Trinity were dealing with meat, you know, soaring meat costs during the entire pandemic that has in no way seen a decline. So, you know, the cost of beef and things like that were, were astronomical. Uh, especially for food carts, which just like restaurants have, you know, paper thin margins for any of this, you're making like three or 4% on an item. So those, the meat prices are still high. Is that what you're saying? Meat prices are still high. I think they've gone down a bit. I saw another food cart just post an article about how their beef prices just went down and they already lowered their menu prices, which is really uncommon, right? Lowering menu prices is practically unheard of. Um, so you have this these new expenses or these increased expenses and you're kind of stuck in a catch-22 because you can raise prices but that's going to turn people off or you're going to eat you know even more of your profit margin so there was that um then there was all sorts of other problems related to distribution um especially with like things that you don't even really think about like the factory that creates or the factories or the producers that create the lining for disposable cups, that kind of like waxy lining, that was having a problem like getting distribution out so people couldn't get to-go cups. Now, a restaurant has a dry storage where you have, you know, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe less um, of cups and boxes and silverware and all that stuff that you need for your job or cooking oil or things like that. A food cart doesn't have a dry storage, right? They don't really have a storage space. Like you're, so you're lucky to have maybe a week's worth of supplies, if that. So you have nothing to back you up if all of a sudden you go to your local chef store and you can't buy any products, you can't buy any, you know, takeout boxes, or you can't buy an ingredient that you need. You don't really have the same, uh, that same safety nets that a restaurant might have. And restaurants, you know, don't like, you know. It's not like they've got months worth of supplies, but they have more than food carts do. So that's another problem. That's a really serious problem, and it's one that we're going to see more and more as as distribution lines keep getting so uh, disrupted. And then the other one is kind of two in one, and that's about the actual physical work of working in a food cart and how hard it is right now. So we were like, oh yeah, you know, food carts have these unique advantages, um, except. Then we had a snowstorm, right, for a big part of winter. And so then we went to summertime, and we're like, okay, well now, you know, this is when food carts shine. It's, it, it, it's time for food carts. Everyone can go out to food carts all the time. We had a heat dome that literally, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, literally melted food carts. It destroyed their freezers and refrigerators. We spoke to countless food cart operators who didn't have anywhere to store their food cart that could protect it from this insane temperature. So the people whose you know, freezers just literally couldn't handle it and broke down, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of infrastructure damage to food carts alone, not to mention the entire city. And of course, in a restaurant that had air conditioning, you could work. In a food cart, there's just no way. Like you can't air condition in that small of a space uh, with when you're that close to a hot, you know, I mean, it's, it's already really, really rough work when you're you know, running a popular fried chicken food cart. You're, you're literally feet from hot oil the entire day. 
So you compound that with, you know, this devastating heat wave and they couldn't operate. And again, those profit margins are so thin that a week of peak service being lost is incredibly disruptive. Like there's just really no recovering from that, not not for a long time. That's really amazing to hear. I had not heard about the infrastructure damages to the food carts due to the heat and the ice. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you see people doing to plan for that in the future. I know like if you're running a food cart, you often don't have money to invest in That's the other, whatever yeah. it would take, right? Absolutely. To, so so what it's we just need... gonna be a continual problem. Well, what we need is, you know, a government that's willing to see that for the problem it is and invest in, you know, better infrastructure. I, I don't know exactly how that would look for food carts. I, I don't know if you just have like a big cooler that you plant them all in for the next heat them. Right. So I, I don't know, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a good solution for that, but it's certainly not, it's not an attractive thing to these people, right? That you have to add that onto everything else you're already doing, you know, often by yourself or with a small team. I think it pays to add that it's not, you know, a lot of the um, food carts you've called out are run by white people who have like credentials in the food industry, but there's also a lot of newcomers to the United States, to Portland, yeah. who are just starting out and this is like a first business. They don't have investors, they don't have backing, they're just making it happen. I, I can't speak to this with certainty, but I very strongly feel that Portland's food diversity is best seen in its food carts that you Absolutely. go to these food cart pods and you have you know not only you're like you know chinese but like you know a particular smaller region within china or you go to the portland mercado and see cuisine from all sorts of latin american countries and regional styles and things like that so i i, I feel pretty confident saying that you know that, that is with our diversity and as you wisely brought up those particular people maybe don't have the same resources that right like higgins has opening their piggins or things like that I immigrants are historically systemically disadvantaged and you see that with food carts absolutely i think that's a really good point yeah we have a little bit more time and i want to kind of talk shift to talk about some of these other things that have been happening concurrently with the pandemic we've seen you know, last summer's kind of racial justice awakening with the murder of George Floyd and a lot of activity in protests all around the city, especially downtown. Um, along with that, uh, the 86 list where um, workers were um, sharing stories of ways they had been abused and oppressed in their work. Um, also the Me Too movement where a lot of women especially, but people of all genders in, in the industry talking about the ways that they'd been discriminated against or assaulted or hurt in, in many different ways. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering, like, is any of it making any real change? Is there lasting change that's going to come out of all of these things? Isn't that the question? My friends and I were lamenting that the other day that, you know, for all of the suffering and, and work and police beatings and arrests and everything that happened last year and we still don't really seem to have seen anything change because of it i mean that was the most dramatic um protest and uprising of my life um and i think a lot of people of my generation would say the same and i i don't feel entirely confident in saying that yeah i've, I've seen a really substantial change because of it i know there has been some i know that like 
one of the companies that was most um, publicly kind of uh, reckoned with was Submarine Hospitality. And so they own um, Ava Jeans and Tusk. Ava Jeans and Tusk were, were two extraordinarily celebrated restaurants in town. Ava Jeans was one of the most popular Italian restaurants in the city. I believe remains today one of the more popular Italian restaurants in the city. And um, Tusk was extraordinarily celebrated for its self-described um, Mediterranean and Middle Eastern cuisine. Uh, notably, that was a restaurant that I do not believe had any person of you know, Southwestern Asia or Northern African lineage working there. I, I could be mistaken, uh, but I do not believe so. And I know that most of the faces that were shown whenever it was in the media, including on Eater, uh, were white faces. So um, Submarine was, was, was one of the ones that had a more dramatic kind of reckoning. Uh, some really serious stories of uh, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, racial abuse, racial harassment, you know, all of this coming out of these kitchens that were so well celebrated prior to that. Now, since then, Submarine has hired a number of um, kind of advocates, essentially, to, to try to better train their staff on, on ethical treatment, I guess would be the right terminology. I, I think they probably have a better one than that. Um, one of their staff members that they hired is uh, a man who used to be a bartender in town who I actually have met on, on, on numerous occasions and find to be a, a really, really uh, likable and um, moral person. So it looks like to me that they are putting in the necessary work to address these issues. They still have many of the same people in senior positions there, so I, I don't know how much it can fundamentally change, but I'm hoping that it can. And we certainly don't want to let that story just die. Like, we, you know, mean to stay in touch with the, the workers, the people who can actually tell whether or not this is getting better, to speak with them throughout, you know, the future and see honestly how well this is changing. Because if it is, that's a really good sign, right? Because that means that a restaurant can actually take accountability and that a restaurant can actually change its ingrained culture. So we've seen stuff like that. And we've seen more restaurants be transparent with their hiring, with how much they're paying. Um, one of the people who has been rather outspoken about this is um, the owner of the food cart JoJo, uh, which shares the space that Holy Trinity once was in as well, the John's Marketplace on PAL. And you know he's been uh, very transparent about like what he pays his workers, how he gives them health insurance, things like that, sort of as a way to encourage others to be as you know forthwith as he has. And he also has the benefit of having this you know extraordinarily successful food cart. That's sort of a meandering answer. What I will also say is that I've been hearing from a lot of voices of people who are people of color or who are black um, and indigenous and. When I hear from them, especially in the restaurant industry, they, and, and, and obviously there's no monolithic voice, right? There's, there's no single opinion coming out of here. But I feel like the overwhelming trend is that they are still disappointed with the lack of real accountability that has happened. That they've seen a lot of Black Lives Matter sign in windows, but they haven't necessarily seen people taking these active steps to better themselves, to, to create a better environment and to unlearn some of the worst, you know, traits of white supremacy and imperialism, which are not terms I use lightly. 
I, I think those are the terms you have to use when you're, you know, discussing these very real issues. And so, you know, we're still seeing restaurants act poorly. We're still seeing people act poorly. People are human beings. They're they're innately fallible. And you're in this country that you know you've been operating in with this, you know, almost invisible to them at least privilege. Um, and so it's it's hard to suddenly learn accountability. Uh, but from what I understand, there's still people who are very very tired and worn out. And um, when I see support for them, these people of color who own restaurants or trans restaurants owners or, you, you know, all, all sorts of voices from people who are normally marginalized in the country. When I see support for them, I usually see it coming from other people who share their, um, who share their disadvantages, right? Or who share their um, social struggles. I, I, I see it far less often from the people who already have you know, a certain amount of privilege and authority. I don't see them speaking out as much. I do see it. It, it. it definitely happens. And I think it's definitely been encouraged by last year's protests and and, accounts and, and reckoning or whatever you want to call it. So it is happening, but I, I haven't, it, it's, you know, it hasn't been that long, um, but it needs to happen faster because it's people's actual lives. You know what I mean? Like changes is slow and inevitable, maybe, but it it that is no comfort for people who are still being physically, financially, and emotionally affected by these sort of injustices. Um, so I guess my my answer is sometimes there's improvement. I, I think if if there isn't the improvement that I would hope to have seen, I feel like at least there's more voices that are actually being able to speak. I, I think social media actually has a really strong impact it's a platform there's a lot of reasons to hate it but there's a lot of reasons that people are able to use it that would not necessarily be otherwise heard especially when media us at eater we're really really trying you know every single day we have these conversations about the way that we've represented people in the past and often kind of idolized chefs without necessarily full accountability right so a lot of our policy right now is about, if we're talking about how great a restaurant is, to talk to the people that work there, to make sure that it is actually a good place to be and that it does treat its workers with justice and it does treat you know, its cuisine with respect, you know, if it's a cultural, uh, if it's culturally relevant, things like that. We're trying to be better as media people and that's all that I can personally do. Um, but yeah, it, it's still there's still a lot of work to be done, I, I think is the case. And I think the most important work you can do if you're trying to support this and you're trying to, you know, better these these existences, these um, systems. I think that one of the best things you can do if you're not from a person who necessarily comes from a marginalized background is to really, really pay attention to the voices that are saying that there's a problem still. There, there's always a backlash, right? You go online, you go to Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and you see, say, like, you know, a, a, a Vietnamese chef who owns, a, like, a vegan restaurant, and she's, you know, says something about racism that, that she personally witnessed, and you see a lot of support for her, and then you still see that backlash. You still see those people, you know, lashing out against her. I think it's really, really important to focus on what those people are saying and to ask yourself before anything else about 
if what they're saying is true, then then what can you do about that? Or how can you help people in those situations? How can you maybe prioritize uh, people who are making food from their own culture rather than appropriating it from others? Um, because I, I think there's this kind of inherent urge to suddenly respond to those sort of accusations of like appropriation or things like that with the, well, isn't it okay, you know, for white people to make this sort of food? Like, why shouldn't we be able to? Instead of, and, and there's there's that impulse that you see happen again and again and again, even from well-meaning people who that's the first question they ask is, well, why can't we? When the truth of the matter is, it's literally never stopped white people ever in the history of this country. So they're obviously, that, that it's a completely meaningless question because they can, they do, they often do. So I, I would really emphasize and really uh, uh, hope that people would stop asking that kind of question and instead start asking questions about like, well, why is this a problem? Like, like really, really, why is this, how are people being hurt by this and what can I do to make that better? Absolutely. Everyone has logic about why they do or don't do things. And I think being super intentional about why you're doing something is always a good policy. And Absolutely. if you don't know why you're doing something, then think about it. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Absolutely. Yeah. That you could think, you know, why am I doing this? And I could be doing something that might be better suit my community. And then maybe let somebody else who has more connection to this thing, maybe they can do that instead. And I can support them and you know I, I can post a photo of them to my Instagram page and tell my it's rough right because we try the the, the the sort of narrative about the Portland food industry is that it's all about community rather than competition and I think that's very true in a lot of instances and it's one of the things I love most about this industry but at the same time like you know you have to have customers in the door you have to be able to make and sell food if you want to survive so there's inherently at least some, and if they're going to your restaurant, they're not going somewhere else that put that meal, right? And that's just the implicit truth of it. And so there always has to be at least some like little level of competition. Uh, so to try to act with intention, I, I, I think you're totally right. Well, thank you so much for all of these ideas and kind of getting us up to speed on all the things that have been happening for the last, I feel like it's, I feel like we've been talking about it as if it's one year, but it's really like know, two it's crazy, years right? and it's yeah. so weird to, to even parse out what happens when, but thank you so much for being here. If people want to read your stories or hear more about your work, where can people read things? Well, primarily that's going to be pdx.eater.com. And that's where you can find all of our news and our maps and our stories and everything else like that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. That was Alex Rain from Eater PDX on The Food Show. Next up, we'll hear part of a discussion about Oregon agriculture and climate change hosted by Friends of Family Farmers. Brittany Deming will introduce Tara Heinzen, legal director at Food and Water Watch, who will then discuss factory farm biogas. Tara is the legal director for Food and Water Watch, which fights for safe food, clean water, and livable climate for all of us. Tara is also involved with the Stand Up to Factory Farms Coalition, which FOF is also a part of. It's a coalition of local, state, and national organizations concerned about the harmful impacts of mega dairies on Oregon family farms, communities, environment, and animal welfare. 
Mega dairies are a major source of air pollutants and significantly contribute to our climate crisis. So thanks for being here to talk about the problems of mega dairies and where we go from here. So to start, as Brittany said, of course, it is critical that we address greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture and in particular from factory farms. Agriculture is a significant contributor to climate emissions overall, and that share is likely to grow as other sectors are forced, maybe not slowly enough, but somewhat to reduce their emissions. In particular, agriculture is the largest sector for methane emissions. And methane is an incredibly powerful short-lived climate pollutant, meaning steep cuts in methane in the near term is one of the most impactful ways that we can cut emissions quickly. The fraction of methane from manure management at concentrated animal feeding operations in particular is growing really quickly because we're losing family farms and livestock production is increasingly dominated by big industrial livestock operations. And those operations use manure management practices that in particular lead to methane being created. So for purposes of tonight, I'll just refer to biogas and I'm specifically just talking about the gas produced from anaerobic waste management systems at factory farms. This biogas is comprised mostly of methane, but there's also carbon dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, and some other gases. To date, across the country, most factory farm anaerobic digesters have been built for on-farm use to generate heat and electricity used on site. But increasingly now we're seeing really large projects that are built to collect biogas on a regional scale, treat it to make it what they call pipeline quality, and then chemically identical to fossil natural gas, and then inject this pipeline quality gas into existing or new natural gas pipeline infrastructure as so-called renewable natural gas or RNG, which is what the industry has termed this product. So I think it's really important to understand how biogas is actually functioning and not just the industry narrative. And biogas is propping up the factory farm livestock production model in a couple of really important ways. First, as I kind of alluded to, the methane captured in these digesters is a product of factory farm waste management practices in particular. Farms that don't store massive quantities of waste in anaerobic pits don't create this climate pollution in the first place. It's a product of mixing kind of the liquids and the solids. It's also important to realize that digesters just don't capture nearly all of the greenhouse gas emissions from CAFOs. On dairy operations in particular, only about half of the methane um, is coming from the manure management. The other half is coming from enteric emissions that are not captured by the digester. So promoting digesters as a climate solution is allowing this industry to greenwash its most harmful manure management practices, and at the same time, ignore and gloss over the real scope of its methane impacts. Digesters are also very expensive and they're very difficult to operate successfully and at high efficiency. So that makes them only viable for the largest operations. EPA has looked at biogas potential at hog and dairy operations across the country and found that only dairy operations with at least 500 head could have a profitable biogas system. And in reality, they're almost never seen at facilities that don't at least have several thousand cows. And this coupled with the fact that digesters are being very heavily subsidized means that in effect, policymakers are putting their thumb on the scale in favor of factory farms and to the disadvantage of 
family farms that aren't creating these emissions in the first place. Another really important reason that biogas can't be a real climate solution is that it's also entrenching our reliance on fossil fuel gas infrastructure at a time when we need to be rapidly electrifying everything and really doing the opposite of breathing new life into the natural gas industry. It seems like the gas industry has seen the writing on the wall and knows that electrification is coming. And in response, it has fully embraced renewable natural gas as a potential lifeline. And as a result, we're seeing a lot of corporate partnerships between big oil and gas and big ag popping up across the country to build digesters as well as the pipelines to network them. And one very recent example in Oregon, a dairy digester operated by Shell Oil just started operating in Junction City. So it doesn't take too much more of a close look to determine what this is really all about, and it is not about creating renewable energy. The potential for factory farm biogas is just not very strong at all, and it underscores that propping up factory farms and enabling the capo industry to expand, along with propping up and extending the lifetime of fossil gas infrastructure, is what this national push for biogas is really all about. EPA, again, has analyzed potential for the industry, and its analysis shows that at maximum build-out, which is a digester on every farm where it's viable, which is really not realistic, even then, EPA found that U.S. dairy and biogas potential is less than 1% of the natural gas being used every year. So I think that pretty clearly shows that this isn't really about producing clean energy. It's not about reducing reliance on fossil fuels. There isn't nearly enough biogas potential to even make a dent in our fossil fuel use. And at the same time, all of the other claimed benefits of digesters are equally untrue. Um, digesters are a false solution to the many harmful impacts that we associate with factory farms on the environment as well as on rural communities. So first, you know, digester proponents like to talk about this technology like it's kind of magic and it magically turns manure into methane and the manure disappears. Obviously that's not true. Um, digested manure is often referred to as digestate. That's a product that in fact contains most of the same pollutants of concern as the CAFO waste that went into the digester and it still has to be disposed of. And that disposal is a serious concern, just like with CAFO waste. In fact, US Department of Agriculture Research has indicated that the nitrogen and phosphorus in digestate are actually more soluble and therefore more susceptible to running off of land application fields into waterways than undigested manure. So digesters are not a water quality solution. They're also often touted as a solution to the nuisance odors associated with factory farm waste. But while digestate probably doesn't smell the same as manure and it varies from place to place, studies have found that digesters actually increase a CAFO's ammonia emissions. And that's important because ammonia is a key air pollutant of concern from factory farms because it causes respiratory impacts for nearby communities. It contributes to fine particulate pollution that threatens public health. It harms visibility in areas like the Columbia Gorge, and it also redeposits into waterways, contributing to nitrogen pollution. Another recent study that made national headlines found that livestock production air pollution dominated by ammonia emissions that form that fine particulate matter are actually responsible for over 12,000 deaths in the US each year. 
which is more deaths than are attributed to air pollution from coal-fired power plants. So increasing ammonia emissions is certainly not the outcome that we want from digesters. And industry also often claims that digestion eliminates the pathogens in CAFO waste. But that result is something that was really obtained only in highly perfectly controlled lab conditions and peer reviewed studies since have shown that the real world results are not nearly as good. Uh, the same is true of claims that digesters remove antibiotics and antibiotic resistant bacteria in the waste. So digested CAFO waste continues to pose threats to public health and to ecosystems including the threat of antibiotic resistance. So what does this mean for Oregon? Um, so far, there hasn't been a ton of investment in biogas in Oregon. EPA maintains a digester database called AgStar, and Oregon also has had a database um, tracking participation in a manure tax credit. Each of them only lists the same six dairy digesters in the state. And until recently, most of these have been farm scale. Um, a big reason for this is probably just that most dairies in the state are not big enough to make a digester viable, or they haven't been to date. And that might be changing. I did mention the new Shell Oil facility that's going to be digesting dairy manure and producing that pipeline quality so-called renewable natural gas. And these energy and ag partnerships and the incentives that they're taking advantage of are likely to make RNG more attractive to more dairy capos here and elsewhere. Our coalition stand up to factory farms did help successfully end the Oregon um, bovine manure tax credit last legislative session, which was a biogas tax credit incentivizing digesters. But really this is a drop in the bucket of all of the federal and state subsidies, incentives and credit trading systems that are emerging. So the one exception to the kind of biogas hasn't taken off in Oregon yet um, is Three Mile Canyon Farms in Boardman. And it's a really good case study actually on how few protections there are against CAFOs gaming the system and exploiting public resources that could be spent on family farms and true climate solutions. So federal stimulus money and a range of state tax credits initially made the digester at Three Mile financially viable. Three Mile's general manager was even quoted in, as saying, we got it to the point with all these different programs to where we could at least break even and service the debt that we took on to build the project. And we felt that opportunity was kind of a one-time opportunity because all these programs came together at once. So without all of these handouts, not a viable technology. But later, years later, when Three Mile wanted to upgrade to RNG and pipe its gas offsite, it was able to do so with tax exempt state bonds and now it sells that gas into California's low carbon fuel standards program. This type of double counting is completely legal and it threatens to make manure more profitable than milk while completely undermining the integrity of climate change programs and any actual claimed methane reductions, keeping us from reaching potentially our climate goals. So Three Mile is not the only factory farm that's exploited the current system. And we have good reason to think that the floodgates for renewable natural gas um, and factory farm biogas could be opening. A lot of other CAFOs have started applying in particular for that California low carbon fuel standard program because it is very lucrative. 
It allows factory farms because of the way it allows for um, calculating emissions impacts to claim artificially low, what's referred to as carbon intensity for their gas, resulting in them getting more credits for their claimed emission reductions than they otherwise should. And the credits are worth a lot of money in this program. So as a result, you know, what we've seen is it looks like this one program is actually driving CAFO expansion, not just in California, but all over the country. Like I said, Three Mile upgraded its facilities so that it could build a pipeline connection and start sending its gas down to California just to take advantage of this program. And that's happening in a lot of places. So one of the things we're doing to fight back is Food and Water Watch is working with partners. We recently petitioned the California Air Resources Board, which regulates this program, to cut factory farm biogas out of the program altogether. But there are a lot of other fires we have to put out. At the same time, USDA is currently poised to roll out a new methane reduction strategy. And what we've seen from the White House so far confirms that it will continue to focus on expanding biogas. So we're prepared to engage in commenting on proposed rules and programs considering the potential for legal challenges and of course engaging our membership and our allies around those fights. And it doesn't stop there because of course Congress is also considering a lot of different legislation right now, including some that would similarly add even more incentives for biogas instead of getting serious about regulating emissions from the biggest industrial livestock producers. And even with our climate champions, we have a lot of work to do educating them about this issue in particular. A lot of people have kind of bought the industry narrative that biogas can be part of a climate solution and it's the only way to rein in emissions from factory farms. And so we need to explain to them why it won't make a dent in our emissions. It will just entrench the very industries driving the climate crisis. So we're working on all of these fronts and please don't hesitate to get in touch with, with your um, contacts at FOF or Stand Up to Factory Farms or me if you're interested in learning more or getting involved. Tara, is biogas use or development being sold as carbon offsets? In effect, the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard Program is an offset program. It's kind of a credit trading program where you sell the credits into the program and then entities that have emissions targets that they haven't met themselves can purchase credits instead of making their own on-site emissions reductions, which of course has a whole host of environmental justice implications where you are likely to see industrial polluters not doing their share and instead buying their way out of emissions targets and likely um, disproportionately impacting lower income and BIPOC communities. So CAFOs have a significant impact on surface and groundwaters. Do you see this getting significantly worse as drought conditions become more prevalent? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. I think it almost certainly will, just because if you have a fixed number of animals on a CAFO, you're going to produce a certain amount of waste. And if you're in a drought condition, you're likely counting on a certain amount of crop uptake of nutrients when you land apply that waste. And that's supposed to be done at an agronomic rate. And so if your yields are not what they're expected to be, you're going to end up in effect having over applied nutrients. And that often will lead to leaching into groundwater resources, as has happened in the lower Umatilla Basin in Oregon, or into, as runoff into surface waters, which may not be as likely in a drought condition. But if you have that accumulation of excess nitrogen in particular in the soil, that certainly is a threat to water quality. 
And I think also, you know, if facilities don't have the water they need for livestock watering and also just for operations, flushing the barns and, you know, dairies are big water users, industrial dairies, that can cause all kinds of operational problems that could in effect have environmental implications, um, malfunctions and equipment failures or emergency needs to dispose of waste because of emergency conditions at the facilities. So I think it removes a lot of certainty. Um, and yes, I think water pollution is probably one of many unfortunate likely consequences. That was Tara Heinzen from Food and Water Watch. Please visit StandUpToFactoryFarms.org to learn more about this issue. Thanks to Friends of Family Farmers for sharing the audio from their in-farmation discussion about farming and climate change. Check out FriendsOfFamilyFarmers.org to learn about their important work supporting farmers in Oregon. That's all for today's show. Visit the Food Show website kboo.org slash foodshow to find links and resources. On the website, you can hear this show and past episodes, or you can find the food show wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow at PDX Food Show for updates, actions, and more about your local food system. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.
listening to KBOO Portland. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Hoy miércoles 17 de noviembre del 2021. Se han recuperado y sobrevivido al COVID-19 más de 230.857.000 personas en todo el mundo. En Estados Unidos, más de 38.139.000. En Brasil, más de 21.177.000. En Argentina, más de 5.174.000. En Colombia, más de 4.877.000 y en México, más de 3.211.000. Hay más de 